Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the looming changes to the BC Land Act, the government moving to joint decision-making here with First Nations. Now, how is this going to work out now? Have a listen here to the leader of the opposition. This is Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United. And joint decision-making means that if one partner doesn't agree with the decision, it doesn't go ahead. That means a veto and that they intend to provide a veto to First Nations across the province that impacts 95% of public land. Okay, do these changes give a veto to First Nations over B.C. public land use decisions? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Nathan Cullen, B.C.'s Minister of Land, Water and Resource Stewardship. Minister, thanks for coming on. Of course, Mike, anytime. Okay, Minister, let's start with this key question that a lot of people are asking. The government moving to joint decision-making here with First Nations. Does this, in effect, give First Nations a veto over land-use decisions in their territories? That if a First Nation says no to a project like a mine or a pipeline, that project does not go forward. Is that the bottom line? Is it a veto? No, it is not. It is not a veto, nor does what we're proposing affect any of the permits or land tenures that exist right now under the Land Act. It does not affect access to the land that British Columbians enjoy right now. And this is simply a tool that gives government the option, if we're in line and lined up with a First Nation and a resource developer, to enter into an agreement to avoid the kind of conflict and very expensive court cases that we've seen in BC far too often. Okay, but the changes are part of the government's adoption of UNDRIP, right? The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And I'm looking at the text of UNDRIP right now, and it says Mm -hmm. states states shall consult and cooperate with Indigenous peoples to obtain their free and informed consent prior to the approval of any project affecting their lands. How is that not a, a, a veto over a project? So let, let's look at the, there's, there's two examples of these agreements that exist right now, um, both with the Taltan First Nation, which is up in the northwest where I live, both with respect to uh, mining projects, two different mining projects, but two very similar agreements. What we've done is we've brought uh, the Taltan, the Br- British Columbia government, and in both cases, the proponent, the, the mining company, have seen an alignment of our interests. We also go through a whole very exhaustive list of how the governance is set up on the Taltan side. Do we both have capacity to come to agreement? And are we in line with wanting to see the project go ahead in a meaningful way? If all of those boxes are ticked, those are the prerequisites for me as a minister of cabinet under these kinds of tools to go back to cabinet, say I'd like to negotiate, bring our teams in. Yeah. Then we do a huge public consultation process, inform all the communities, get their engagement and participation. And if we get to an agreement, which we did in both cases with Taltan, Bring it back to cabinet. The whole agreement is public. And think, Mike, the interesting part of this is that it, it couples, in this case, Taltan, but the First Nation to the BC government so that we're both obligated to the same rules of administrative fairness, legal oversight, so that the existing of tenures and permits are under the same protection that they are if they were issued by the BC government alone. But, so 
it actually elevates. It's the gold. It's the gold standard of agreements. And the mining outfits, oil and gas sector, when they look at the possibility of these types of agreements, yeah. have been very enthusiastic for us to get there. And this is, as you say, this was imagined in that Declaration Act that we all but, voted for, including Mr. Rustad, yeah, to see this through, so we could actually get some peace on the land. But what if there is no? potential for agreement what if there is no alignment of interests like you described there like for example let's say a mining company proposes a, a yeah. new copper mine in bc uh-huh. and the and the government believes this is a good project this is in the public interest we would like to see this project go forward if a first nation in that area sa- disagrees and says no we oppose this project you're saying the government could potentially still approve that project anyway not not under a section Seven agreement would be more challenging, but I'd I'd say the scenario, Mike. I don't know. Like, well, how don't is that how not a veto? Follow, no, but I don't know how close you're following the mining sector right now. We just had an, an announcement from a Cloud Lake First Nation up in the north, more more towards the northeast. We had the Artemis Gold project just south of Vanderhoof, huge project, lots of employment, and both of those projects, when they were initiated, yeah. came together. The First Nation and the company approached government and said, "Here's something we're interested in." If you're going to the capital markets, trying to raise money in Vancouver, New York, it doesn't matter, London, the first question that you'll get is, how is the relationship with First Nations? Do you have the pieces in place so that this project is going to be durable? We're not going to see court cases. Because that's, folks, when they look at a proposal, don't look at the alternative, which is the status quo. And what's disappointing is that folks are starting to suggest that if we don't do these agreements, if we don't try to seek the ability to work together, the status quo is somehow way better, and it's not. <laughs> the, the status quo is BC companies losing court cases consecutively, costs us millions and millions of dollars, creates that uncertainty. And so what's strange to me, Mike, is if you looked at the official opposition just a few weeks ago in Prince George, released their natural resource plan, and said that we want consent-based consent shared decision-making. Kevin Falcon did a whole press conference on this in Prince George, which is exactly what we're talking about. So let's stop playing the politics. Let's stop playing the fear game. Let's just talk about the well, reality. And the reality. I, I don't think. I don't think. Make, make I progress. don't think it's. I don't think it's that strange, really, for people to have questions and concerns about how this is going to work on the ground. Like if you take a look at the situation on the Sunshine Coast with the proposed dock management plan up there. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the best yeah. example of what people are worried about. The province right now negotiating this with the Seashelt First Nation, boaters and property owners, they're worried about a proposed ban yeah. on houseboats. They're worried about a limit on dock sizes that could force them to tear out existing dock infrastructure, costing them thousands of dollars. They wouldn't be allowed to have yeah. a houseboat that they've had there in the past. What do you say to those people who are concerned who are saying, wait a sec, you're saying this is going to be great, it's going to be certainty. It's not certainty for those people. That's right. And we don't have one of these agreements with that nation, right? So what I would say is that the ability for us to work together, and we're working right now as we speak with Seychelles First Nation to come to a a good resolution for everybody. That is the interest of the BC government. That is the interest of everybody, the local representatives and on down the line. That's that's the work. This is the hard work of reconciliation, man. It's, It's not for wimps, as somebody said. We will get that better. We will get it right. On the questions that have been raised, and so people's concerns, hey, I got no trouble. And we've been having hundreds and hundreds of conversations in the last few weeks, month, with industry groups, First Nations, local mayor. Like, we're going to continue to take everybody who's got a question about this. We'll sit down and talk. We'll walk them through. And most, the vast majority, when they say, 
what is it that you're proposing on the Land Act? I say it's this. And they say, oh, all right, well, get on it. The, the, the answering of concerns is legitimate. The spreading of fear is disappointing and actually, I would argue, dangerous. And I've seen it from some of the folks in the political spectrum and some commentators making this thing out to be something that it's not. This gives government the option with public involvement and engagement and informed uh, proposals yeah. to be able to enter into agreements. Let me, if let if me people put... don't think that that's a good tool, then yeah. they can say so. But they're entitled to their own values, their own opinions, the opposition are, but they're not entitled to their own set of facts. Well, let me, let me, let me put to you, exactly what they are. speaking of Kevin Falk and the, the opposition leader here, BC United, let me put something to you that he said to me, okay? So he said... Okay. Land use decisions are supposed to be made in the public interest. The government is entrusted to make these decisions in the broad public public interest, right? Which means everybody, indigenous, non-indigenous, rural, urban, business, labor. But if you now derogate or you transfer part of that authority to one group, in this case a First Nation, that group is obviously going to make a decision that is in their personal interest, not necessarily in the broad public interest. Is that, I think that, isn't that a legitimate concern when you go into joint decision-making over, over the land? I'm not going to take lessons from somebody who's sold off public lands cheap to friends when they were in power, but what I would say is this, is that the public interest and First Nations interests, when we enter these agreements, align, as they've done with the two that we've signed so far with respect to Taltan. And speak... Like, talk to the Taltan, talk to the company, talk to the local communities, Mike. Like, listen to what they're saying about how this is working on the ground with yeah. respect to bringing people together, working together, rather than fighting this out in the courts over and over and over again. So if Mr. Falcon believes in consent-based shared decision-making, which is word for word <laughs> what, his, what his proposal was to the Natural Resource Summit in Prince George three weeks ago, then that's exactly what we must work towards. Like, you can't believe in reconciliation in theory, but not in practice. The practice of this well, is, is that we sit down at, now we sit down at tables, we work through difficult issues, and we find what the public interest is. And if we can do it alongside Indigenous governing bodies, as is outlined in the tool that I've been describing to you today, that builds the durability and the predictability that industry homeowners are looking for, because that's exactly what's going to last and not get caught up in the conflict in the courts and all the backlash that we can see sometimes. Last question for you. What about, you touched briefly on this, what about crown land access that exists right now for recreation, hunting, fishing, yep. ATV off-roading, snowmobiling? Can you assure people yep. who enjoy access to crown land in BC for these activities right now that their existing access and the use of these lands for these activities will be preserved and guaranteed going forward, or could those be limited or reduced? I guarantee all the things that you just said will continue. If these amendments were to come into place, the next morning, all of that access would remain for people to recreate, for people to hunt and fish, of course, under the rules that we have for hunting and fishing that exist already, timing and whatnot. But that the access that people enjoy in this province right now continue. The Land Act amendments we are proposing do not affect those issues at all. All this does is enable us in the future, if we have alignment with a First Nation over a particular proposal, to sit down, work together, negotiate, and make a durable agreement that works out for all British Columbians, including First Nations. This is a natural extension of the Declaration Act, and this is exactly what industry has been calling for, predictability and certainty so that they're not seeing their projects stuck okay. up in court or in Panama or entirely cancelled. 
All right, Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Appreciate it, Mike. All right, let's continue talking about this now. The changes to the BC Land Act, the government moving to shared joint decision-making here with First Nations. A lot of concerns raised about this. You heard my conversation with the cabinet minister responsible there, Nathan Cullen. He says there's nothing to worry about here. This is actually going to make things better. Let's check in with Michael Lee, BC United MLA. Michael, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. I know you heard the interview. What do you think about what he said there? I think the minister is uh, definitely uh, trying to walk everything back here. The challenge, Mike, has been there was a posting on a government website, EngageBC, engagegov.bc.ca. It was secret. There was no attention drawn to this, Mike. And there's a slide deck. The slide deck on slide six clearly indicates, and I disagree with what the minister is saying, the proposal is, there would, there would be a joint decision-making process for Land Act decision. Yeah. That's a change, Mike. That's a massive change, covering 95% of the public land base. And so currently, we have accountability through an elected representative, accountability through the Minister of Water, Land, and Resource Stewardship under the Land Act to act in the public interest. And that's what Kevin Falcon and BC United have said. Public lands have to be for all of British Columbians. This change is very clear. It's not in theory, and this is what Minister Cullen and the NDP are rushing through in a secretive manner. When Minister Cullen talks about confusion and concerns, well, we're, right, British Columbians have a right to be concerned, and that's what Kevin Falk and the BC United team have been raising, because there's a lack of details here. And the lack of details in a rushed consultation process, by the end of March, they're going to bring forward legislation in the dying days of this Legislative Assembly, when we know the NDP are focused on the next election. Do you think, do you have concerns about whether major natural resource projects could go forward under this, under this protocol and this could potentially hurt the economy? Like the minister, I think this is the big concern for a lot of people. The minister is saying, look, this is going to make things better. This is going to, pre- this is going to provide certainty for investors, for companies, for everybody, so that these projects are not hung up in court and battled over for years in court at a cost of millions of dollars, so we get this, we get these work done on the ground. Are you buying that, or do you think there, this could actually scrap some development? But your thoughts? It's very clear the Minister Cullen made reference to uh, Kevin Falcon's announcement at the uh, Prince George yeah. Resource Forum. Right. And under the Resource Prosperity Plan, we clearly have set out the need to ensure that we have alignment with First Nations for economic growth in our province through the introduction, for example, of an Indigenous Loan Guarantee Program. And we're looking to this government to adopt that program, like other provinces in our country have, to give access to capital for First Nations to progress their economic resource development projects with the province of BC and and the industry. So we understand, of course, and, and we have a history, of course, under the former BC Liberal governments of over 400 agreements with First Nations to progress resource development projects. So we need certainty for sure. Mike, with this proposal under the Land Act, I would argue that it provides a lack of of certainty because now we're talking about 204 nations having the ability to pursue government to say to them, we want an agreement, just like the Taltan, on Land Act and Land Act tenures. And, and, you know, you, you pointed out at the end, I mean, that includes dock permits, but it also includes licenses of occupation, mining leases, grazing leases. Uh, rights of way, 
all land tenure-based decisions on public lands. So that's not going to lead to more certainty. This is a massive change that's going to cause a great deal of uncertainty for industry and investors in our province. Michael, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Talk about drug decriminalization in British Columbia now, 2.5 grams. That is the legal possession limit in our province now for cocaine, heroin, crack cocaine, fentanyl, crystal meth, ecstasy. And we've just passed the one-year anniversary of this. Now, the state of Oregon went first. So they decriminalized drug possession there way before we did. We kind of modeled what we did on what they did. Now, in the state of Oregon, they've had decrim for about three years now. Now, check out what's going on. They're thinking of walking it back, maybe going to a, a, a recrim. I forget about decrim. Maybe they go to a recrim, a recriminalized drug possession. Let's, uh, we'll find out what's happening. Uh, ben West standing by. First, let's have a listen to this report. This is from CBS News. Three years after decriminalizing drug use, some lawmakers in Oregon are pushing to change course. The governor recently declared a fentanyl state of emergency. It establishes a command center and a way for emergency management services to better coordinate. But data shows Measure 110 has not had the expected impact on preventing overdoses. Deaths continue to rise. We've had three years of this law that has not delivered on the promise that voters thought they were getting. Okay, let's discuss how it worked out there in Oregon. Let's go to Oregon now. My guest is Ben West. Ben is a county commissioner in Clackamas uh, near Portland. Very pleased to welcome him. Ben, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a great opportunity to get to speak with you and your audience today. Yeah, we appreciate it, too, because there's a lot of interest here on how this has worked out in Oregon. Are we going down the same path? If you go back three years ago, Ben, when this was first proposed, the decriminalization, did you support it at the time? No, I was one of the only elected officials that come out publicly and even to do um, a public statement against this. I'm also a nurse. I work at a large academic um, hospital here in Portland. Um, and I knew that this was going to be um, a problem and that it was going to snowball into something that voters didn't quite understand they, that w- what they were getting into. And that's exactly what has happened. Um, and even three years later, the problem continues to persist and even be worse um, than it was prior to Measure 110 being passed by the voters. What, what would you say are the biggest problems that you've seen there? Well, we have seen an explosion in overdose deaths, and um, all of the outcomes um, are showing us that this policy is making the problem worse, and the problem is persistent. In Oregon, we have the highest rate of increase in fentanyl deaths in the nation, with a one-year increase of more than 67%. Meanwhile, we also rank 50th in the nation in the United States, providing access to addiction treatment. And then we're also seeing an, an just a spike in the youth in, in usage with our youth. Um, we're seeing a 666% increase in teen um, overdose deaths also in the last two years. So we've really just seen this explode. Um, and we, it is, we, are, we are seeing it in our streets. We're seeing it in our parks and our schools and throughout our um, community. We're just seeing human despair and uh, people um, trapped in this endless cycle um, with no access to getting the care or getting their dignity back or getting treatment. 
Yeah, I remember at the time, it's interesting that you were one of the few opposed there as among elected officials, because I know there was a lot of support and hope that this would improve things, and certainly there was hope here that it would, it would improve things. One of the reasons that we, we did decrim here, Ben, was to reduce the stigma of drug use. This is what authorities said, that if we reduce that stigma, more people will be willing to come forward, get help, and the situation will get better. Was that, was that essentially the plan in Oregon as well? There's some of that, but there's also the, we talk about, they talk about bodily autonomy um, and um, not um, coercing people into treatment as not being um, the right way to, the right way to go. But here's the, here's the reality of the situation is that enabling this and allowing people in an altered state of mind that can no longer advocate for themselves to persist in their disease without intervening is not compassionate. It's actually quite immoral. And so we're now looking in Oregon to push measures forward or looking to try to make changes that allow us to intervene while somebody is in the throes of addiction to help them get on a pathway to recovery. And the ultimate goal really is sobriety and long-term recovery. And that currently has not been um, how we've operated in Oregon. Um, we, we give out a lot of Narcan, but we don't give out a lot of hope. Now, let me play a clip here for you from our chief coroner, Ben, get your thoughts on this. This is uh, Lisa LaPointe uh, speaking on the release of overdose death data here in British Columbia recently for last year. We had a record high number of overdose deaths here, too. Seven a day on average, highest ever uh, during the first year of decriminalization. And here's our chief coroner talking about how decrim was supposed to work here and how it's turned out, and I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. Decriminalization is not responsible for these deaths. The goal of decriminalization didn't mean that more drugs were available. The goal of decriminalization, as stated, was to remove the stigma so that people could access supports. We don't have those supports in place. Yeah, we don't have those supports in place even though that was part of the original plan, steer people into treatment and supports, but we don't have the supports. Like, what do you think of that? Like, you know, was there a plan in Oregon when you guys started decriminalization three years ago to expand treatment and supports and, and detox at the same time? Did that happen there? No, we actually, like I said earlier, we ranked 50th in the nation to access the care and treatment. Not only did we not have the ability to give you the care you needed if you had addiction, we decided to give you um, more access to the thing that was causing you to be sick without actually ever giving you care. Um, and so what we've seen here in Oregon is just an utter explosion um, of bad outcomes. And these things don't just stay like in a vacuum. What happens in Portland affects the entire region. I believe what happened in Portland impacted what happened in Vancouver. Um, and you're seeing similar outcomes than we're seeing. We're seeing 100 people a day um, in Oregon. I'm sorry, not a day, a month. 100 people a month die of, of an overdose. Um, if you take that into context, um, imagine if a, a big bridge collapsed and it was rush hour and we lost 100 people in a bridge or in an earthquake. All all, everybody would come together and figure out how to solve this problem. What implementate? What plans do we need to implement to fix this? But in Oregon, because um, leaders are captured by special interest groups and um, by a radical ideology, um, we still don't have quite the urgency necessary to solve the problem.
um, even though we are losing 100 people a day. And they're talking about stigma, and I'm stepping over dead bodies in my streets. Um, and so when you, when you look at it that way and you see the real outcomes as life, um, it, it brings a different perspective. Speaking to Ben West, Ben is a county commissioner in the Portland area, Clackamas County there, talking about decriminalization of drug possession. Uh, the state of Oregon did it before we did. Three years ago, they did decrim. So they went first, and there's lots of talk about walking it back. What is happening there right now, Ben? There's a, there seems to be a support uh, from both major parties, Republicans and Democrats, here to to walk part of this back. Is that what's happening? It just gets into the weeds a little bit um, uh, and how they want to do this. We just started what's called a, a short session. It's a very, it's a, it's might be a month long um, in Salem. Salem is the state capital in Oregon. And they just started a short session. And one of the big issues they're trying to tackle is fixes to measure 110. And right now they're debating over what's called a Class C misdemeanor versus a Class A misdemeanor. A Class C misdemeanor, though, is so mild and so light, it basically is the appearance of doing something without actually doing anything while appeasing their base and, and appeasing the voters who, by polling data, are really upset right now in the area. Um, but Class A misdemeanor allows us to have at least 364 days where we can use um, a modern justice system to intervene, to help people be accountable, but also get treatment and care and spur them into that care over a longer period of time that allows them to be stabilized on that recovery process. Um, but they're, they're, the big battle right now is how much are we going to actually recriminalize? So we're starting to have that argument. The voters in Oregon have said clearly they're ready to just fully repeal Measure 110. Um, and the state legislature and the people that are um, control the levers of power down in that body of government right now are trying to massage this and, and, and figure out how they can um, decriminalize it as criminalize it as little as possible um, while kind of walking out with mm. their um, integrity. I remember a year ago when we began decriminalization here in British Columbia, Ben, and, and I spoke to a few officials in, in Portland at that time. And I remember asking one official there who was very unhappy about how decrim had worked in, in Portland and Oregon up to that point. And I asked him if he had a message for the people of, of British Columbia and Vancouver as we started decriminalization here. And he told me, don't do it. Just don't do it. We've already been through it. It's not working here. It's getting worse. Don't do it. Is Would that have been your message a year ago to us? Um, yeah, and I would just say look at the evidence that, you know, I feel like sometimes the the decriminalization um, group or the people that promote that ideology, um, I almost feel like now the emperor has no clothes. We were told one thing and to believe one thing, but it's very clear that the outcomes are not what we were told. And um, I think we were, often, we, also, we, we were misled and lied to. And so I would encourage you guys um, to back away from this and, and any jurisdiction or anywhere in the world that is looking at doing this way, especially with no access to treatment or care and no infrastructure for that and no ability to manage the crisis. So don't, don't put gasoline on the fire. And that's exactly what Oregon did. And if you look at our outcomes three, days, three years later, you'll see that this did not work um, and that many of our voters have buyer's remorse. And um, it's impacted every aspect of um, our communities. Portland is now a hollowed-out shell of its former self. It used to be one of the crown jewels on the West Coast, and now um, it looks like something out of um, 
you know, Tina Turner's Thunderdome, um, like a dystopian nightmare at times. And that's where I grew up, and it's hard to see that happen. So I would urge you guys not to continue down this path. Ben, thank you for coming on with your perspective on this today. I'm grateful to you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the big game this Sunday. Of course, it is Super Bowl 58 for the first time being held in Las Vegas. The hype, the hoopla is already building. Let's go to Vegas right now and check in with my guest, Paul Contino. Paul is a very popular social media influencer in Sin City. He is better known to his fans as Vegas Pauly C. Paul, thanks for coming on today. Well, hello, hello, hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, Paul. Thanks for coming on. First of all, congrats to you on all your success here. Seven million likes on, on TikTok, uh, and you're doing great there on, on all social media platforms. Let's First of all, Paul, let's talk about uh, the mood in Vegas right now. How would you describe the vibe there with the Super Bowl on the way? Oh, it's absolutely euphoric. I mean, it's I get emotional. You know, I, get, I, get, I get choked up because it's just so exciting. I've never seen anything like it. They said F1 was going to be big. This is 10 times the emotionality of F1. Is that right? Now, this has got to be huge for all the casinos. And do the dealers make – they must oh, love it. They make bigger tips this week, I imagine. Well, I saw some of the advanced numbers for F1, and a bunch of the executives who talked to me said that it's double and triple uh, F1's projection numbers. So – in in November, everybody was very excited about F1. But at the end of the day, F1 only brought in $155 million to the casinos. And there was a lot of problems with F1. There was a lot of trepidation in the community. But uh, with Super Bowl, it's off the hook. You, know, you have to understand that with Super Bowl, you can still watch it at a Super Bowl party and still get hyped and still enjoy the crowd and still enjoy the game. With F1, if you're watching it at an F1 watch party, it's just not there. Plus, F1 is really more of a foreign sport, whereas the Super Bowl is America. So we're, we're just so hyped up here. So hyped up. Speaking of those watch parties, Paul, for people who are down there, if they're not going to the actual game itself, uh, they, there's tons of watch parties. You can go and watch the game in, in Vegas. I watched one of your videos about the, uh, the facility that the Wynn Hotel has at the stadium. But this video has taken off for you here, Paul. 1.8 million views on TikTok. Good grief here. Tell me about this Wynn Field Club here. Well, that's, that's a great story. So uh, Wynn has me sometimes to the football games. So I went to the last two football games of the season, and they had me in the Wynn Club. And uh, one of the hosts there said to me, hey, Vegas Police, you know that table in the front there is $700,000. So immediately I say to myself, wow, that, that's going to be a great video. And I run over, and next thing I know, I'm talking to the guy who's behind that, who sets the prices on those. And I say to him, look, i, I got to ask you a question. Is this table in the front here really $700,000? And he says, wow, that's exactly what I'm, I'm planning on pricing it at. And I said, yeah, so-and-so just told me. I said, can I go public with that? And he said, absolutely. Hmm. So he let me go public with that, and I was very happy with that video. Now, they've changed the pricing on that several times. After he was going to put it up for 700000 they changed the pricing to $1.5 Oh. And then they dropped it down to one. And then, yeah, those, so there's a $1.5 million video there. Uh, and then they dropped it down to a million. And now I think it's back to 700000 again. So it's dynamic pricing, just like if you go on Vivid Seats or wherever you go, the prices are moving uh, all over the place. 
But I don't know that they were – they certainly weren't able to sell it at a million five, or they would have, and I think there's five or six tables. But I was there, and I was very excited. I got some stock footage, uh, and I hate doing this, but I had a voiceover on my second video because I begged uh, to get back into Allegiant Stadium, and the NFL was like, no. So I couldn't <laughs> do my second video from Fresh, Fresh Video, which I was upset about, but I still got a lot of views. Oh, you so did. You really did. I, I recommend uh, the listeners to check that out. What do you get for 700000 You just get a, a table where you and your friends can sit. Is that it? Oh, they're going to give you unlimited food and, and drink. You know, they're going okay. to they're they're bring you the lobster. They're going to bring you everything. So, and is it, it's right, know, and it's I, right I mean, down I'm talking, at... I'm, honestly, I'm it's right down at field level. I don't, really know, I don't really know. What's that? Is it right down at field level there, this place? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, what I realized when I went to that game, and I was so shocked, it, and I was upset about it because there weren't a lot of end zone plays, but you are one foot from the end zone. So if you have an end zone play, like if the other team is on the one-yard line and they're coming in, you know, you could get a ball thrown right at your face. I mean, you're, it's immersive. <laughs> man, oh, man. Speaking of Vegas, Paul E.C. in Las Vegas, we're talking about all the hype and hoopla for the Super Bowl. Now, Paul, you mentioned that the F1, the Formula One race last year in Vegas, was a, a really big deal. Um, and this one's even going to eclipse that. This is even bigger for the Super Bowl. I remember hearing from some locals, people who actually live and work in Vegas, that they didn't really like the F1 too much because it was such a hassle, all streets closed off and that kind of thing. Like, do people who live and work there actually like, do they like these big events? Well, I think that there's a certain number of people who are pragmatists who say to themselves, look, we have to suffer in order to get the benefits. What was interesting about the F1 is, is that the suffering was so much more than I believe the actual benefits were at the end of the day. So that one really split way more down the middle. If there's suffering involved with the Super Bowl, maybe, you know, 98% are positive and 2% are negative. But with the F1, you have to realize, uh, and I don't know the exact number, so I'll, I'll just make a number up. There's 100,000 people going to work every day on the Strip. If they have to spend an extra hour in the morning and an extra hour in the evening to get to their jobs to deal with the traffic, look at that sacrifice. You have 100,000 times 20 hours is, what, 2 million hours a week? And this went on for 10 weeks? That's yeah. 20 million hours of worker sacrifice for $155 million. You know, what's fascinating about it is, is that Caesars, which is going to announce its earnings in two weeks, actually warned the stock market on January 18th. Hey, we didn't make any more money from the F1 uh, than we would have a normal fourth quarter. They actually went down $50 million in revenue. Almost all of the money from the F1 was in high limit blackjack and Baccarat winnings. And all of that money, for the most part, went to the win the Venetian, and the Bellagio. So mm. Caesars, who does have a, a medium-high property, Caesars actually says in its quarterly warning, January 18th, they actually say, hey, look, all of these closures for the F1 really hurt us. How and much money do you think they'll make for the Super Bowl? Well, the Super Bowl is going to be a win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win everywhere. Normally I would say win-win, which is a cliche, but it's just a win everywhere. I mean, it's going to accrue to everybody's bottom line. Uh, we did we did a billion four three uh, in the month of December. Uh, January I, from the executives I've talked to, January is down a bit, uh, but I could see February up around a billion five, a billion six in total winnings uh, in the state of Nevada. I could see that number. That's it'll, be, it'll be a record month. That's amazing. Like when you take a look at Vegas's, Vegas seems to be booming right now. Are they making record profits right now? You know, I want to qualify what I just said. February only has twenty nine days. So actually, with the two days missing, it may be a problem to have a record month in February. But yeah, uh, ga gaming is definitely booming. 
And what happened with gaming is, is they legalized sports gambling in the United States with the repeal uh, of that act that was not allowing sports gambling. You know, in 1992, they passed uh, PAPSA or whatever it was called, and they repealed it in 2018. And if you really look at the numbers inside of casinos, uh, you can really see how the repeal of that has been such a boom to Las Vegas. I think Las Vegas, uh, if I'm not speaking correctly, I think Las Vegas had record winnings in sports last month. I haven't actually looked at those numbers because, believe it or not, the Nevada Gaming Commission website was actually hacked about a week and a half ago, so I can't get in and get the granular numbers. Uh, but it's a record because the whole country, this is what happens, the whole country learns how to bet parlays, learns how to bet sports, uh, learns, learns how to bet on totals. And now once they have that knowledge, they say to themselves, well, let me combine that with a great trip to Las Vegas. And they come out here and they want a sports bet. Now, sports betting is only, what, six, eight, ten hours a day? So they're pulling on slot machines. They're playing games the rest of the time. So the repeal of PAPSA, and I hope I'm saying it correctly, I think it's P-A-P-S-A, the repeal of that law has been an absolute boom to Las Vegas. The only thing that was holding it up, of course, was the pandemic. But once that was over, it was, uh, you know, straight ahead, full speed. Okay, Paul, last question for you here with the Super Bowl on the sure. way. Where will you be on Super, Super Bowl Sunday? Are you going to the game? Well, I'm not going to the game because I'm an influencer, and I say that in quotes because I don't really consider myself an influencer. I'm more of an informational guy. But I only have uh, 300,000 followers on TikTok and 200 and change on Instagram. So I'm not big enough for anybody to care about spending $8,000 on a ticket for me or $16,000 for a pair. I always tell my I, – I, I do a morning show, and I always tell the morning show, I'm only worth about $700 because that's the offers that I get from people, you know, promote my this, promote my that. And I don't take money from anybody. So I'm turning down $700 offers all the time. But the marketplace tells you what you're worth. And when you're only worth $700, you're not going to a $16,000 football game. So I'll be at home. <laughs> okay, Paul. Thank That's you. the bottom line. I hope you have a great time uh, at the, watching the game. Thanks for this update on all the excitement in Vegas this week. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. That is Paul Contino. Can I do my outro? Yeah, go Can ahead. Can I do my outro? Yes, please. Vegas, Paulie C. <laughs> Thank you, Paulie. Thank you. That is Vegas, Paulie C. in Las Vegas, uh, who does a great job on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, he's a Las Vegas social media influencer getting ready to watch the game at home, <laughs> like everybody else is going to do, yeah. most people. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.